I'm Willie D. Nelson from All Things Good and Nerdy, a pop culture podcast, part of the Gunna Geek Network. Just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other tantalizingly geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Each week we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Steven, Chris, and SP. Welcome to an all-new episode of the official Gonna Geek Show. I am Steven, and with me, of course, is Chris Farrell. I'm back, baby. Also, we have... No, it's just the two of us. That's that's what it is. Just the two of us. We can make it if we try. Just the two of us, Chris. No? No, no. comment on that? No? No singing, no singing. We'll get in trouble with the uh, with the magic YouTube sensors, and they'll put a strike on us. We'll have to get all <laughs> sad. And then we'll have to mope and write a big page in response and wait yes. for a day for them to literally just uncheck a box and not tell us anything again. So, uh, hey, yeah, SP's away this week because I don't know if you know this. We're recording this on Monday, the 6th of September, and in Marka and Ada. It is Labor Day, so SP is away at the lake. I'm sure he's flying his drone. I'm sure he is doing much more interesting things than talk to Chris and I. Well, anything is more interesting than talking to me. I don't know why you guys are all here. I'm not a draw. <laughs> Before we get into our news, I got two, two things I want to mention at the top of the show here. Number one, let's give a shout out to our resident guest. He frequently comes on, Suncast. Uh, Suncast was producing a uh, podcast for a um, certain podcast called Matt Men, which is over on the GFT network. So he was at an event with Andrew Zarian and a bunch of other people, and he was uh, helping produce a uh, live podcast, I guess we'll call it. I don't know what we want to call it. But that led to a, uh, an, a, a watching of a wrestling event. Please, please explain this better than me, Chris, because I'm not into wrestling at all. What, what was he doing? Well, last night was the AEW All Out pay-per-view, which is one of their quarterly pay-per-views they do. And one of the wrestlers goes by the name of John Moxley. You might know him as Dean Ambrose if you're a WWE fan. And part of his entrance is he comes in through the audience to go down to the ring. And when he came in through the audience, he paused and looked out at the crowd. And I looked at the screen and I went, I think that might be Suncast. And Suncast texts us and goes, hey, I think I might be on camera. And sure enough, I got the replay of the pay-per-view today because I watched it last night, queued it up, and I was like, that's Suncast right there. He's a celebrity, made his wrestling pay-per-view debut last night into what is arguably probably one of the best wrestling pay-per-views I've seen in 20 years. So it's all because of Suncast. And also, just so you know, Suncast, if you ever guest on this show again, you will be from this point forward billed as Suncast as seen on AEW. That's what it's going to be. He's all elite suncast right there. Uh, so that was cool to see. Uh, I, again, I know nothing about wrestling, never been into it, but uh, I did see these clips. I did be a part of that group message that was going on. Most of what was being said between Chris and Suncast, I did not understand. However, I saw the clips and, and can recognize how awesome that was. So congratulations on that, Suncast. You are the uh, a, a most famous 
of the Gunna Geek podcasters. Uh, also, I want to just give a little note here, a little update. I don't know if you know this. I have a smart home. Have I ever mentioned that on the show, Chris? I am shocked. I never knew that Steven had a smart home. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. So I have, I have several security cameras and I also have some outdoor motion sensors out, out there and the two of them tie together in addition to doing some other smart stuff. And I noticed that for a couple of days in a row, there was a couple raccoons coming through my yard. Now, Uh-oh. where I live, it's not co- uncommon for a raccoon to come through the yard. Usually it either gets my garbage until I go and put a bungee on it. And then it goes away after a couple of nights of realizing the bungee's there. But for a long time, I've had those garbage cans strapped now. And, and and so I haven't seen them in a while. But it's uncommon, though, to see two of them coming. So after two nights in a row of seeing two, I decided, hey, I got to take care of this because I realized I also have a smart sprinkler system. So I decided to bridge the two together. And what I did was when the motion sensor tripped, it turned on my sprinkler system in the zone and it worked. It absolutely worked. Now, looking at the video footage, I realized there's actually five raccoons in my yard. So I, I have since expanded to all the other zones. And unfortunately, the last two nights, I have not had them come back, which is good. But I wanted to, you know, at least see see my, my smart home pay off there a little bit. They'll probably come back eventually. But if you want to see this short clip, it's just, you know, I think 45 seconds long of raccoons getting sprayed. You can go to www.geeks.link slash wet raccoons. That's geeks.link slash wet raccoons. It's all fun and laughs until Steven forgets to take the trash can or put trash in the trash can one night and steps outside and gets the sprinklers turned on himself. <laughs> yeah, that's something like that's going to happen. <laughs> Something's going to happen. It's going to be like six months from now. And you're going to be like, oh, son of a, a bunch of expletives. And yeah. you're like, damn it, this is my fault. <laughs> but hey, it worked and it scared them away. And that was kind of fun. And actually turns out that when it went off that third night, it was actually three of them nearby. And one of one of them looked like it was ready to fight the sprinkler, which also would have made good video, but it it also retreated. So, hey, if you want to talk about smart home stuff like this, come to our Discord server as well. You can go to gunageek.com slash Discord because I did actually share this story in there a couple days ago after it happened. I think it was yesterday, but all the days blend together on a long weekend. Let's go ahead and move into the news. All right, let's start off today with a bit of Pixel news. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Google makes a phone called the Google Pixel. Or as SP calls it, the Pixie. Or as SP calls it, the Pixie, yes. So the Google Pixel this year, uh, I believe, is the Pixel 6 that is scheduled to come out. Some details have been released. We're still waiting on the official release. So naturally, you must think, hey, Steven's talking Pixel 6 news this week. Well, you'd be wrong because I want to talk about Pixel 3 news. Apparently, multiple Pixel 3 owners are reporting that there is a problem that is making their Pixel 3s useless. According to Ars Technica, there have been a number of Pixel 3 and Pixel 3 XL users that are reporting problems saying that their phones are essentially being bricked with no warning. 
the devices are entering what is called Qualcomm's, quote, emergency download mode. You might be more oh, familiar no. by the acronym or the, the short version EDL. I know you've probably heard about that all the time. That won't let you do anything with it once it enters this. You can't install new firmware. You can't do anything with the bootloader. Nothing happens. Nobody really knows what's causing this issue or, relatively speaking, how common it is because, again, this is a bit of an older phone. But at the moment, there's no real solution for this. And if you think about it, last year's version was the Pixel 5. So we're talking a couple of years old. Many of these users are probably out of warranties. And if you're in warranty by chance, you're probably getting close to being out of warranty. We don't know what the problems are with this, but there is speculation that it is probably something hardware related, similar to LG's previous boot loop problem that has happened with other devices. But if you have a Pixel 3 right now and you feel like it's getting long in the tooth, might be a good idea to get off it or at least back up your data or at least get it in the cloud sooner than later. I really feel bad for people with Pixel 3s. Uh, you and me, we both had Pixel 2s, and you had a, I had a Pixel 2, you had a 2XL. And it was only last year we got rid of those devices. So it's very, very feasible or plausible that there are many Pixel 3 users out there which are quite content with their devices. And I hope that whatever is causing this, there might be some form of software fix that they can implement so that maybe it has to throttle something to prevent this. I don't know. This is not a good situation here. And if they do have to throttle it, you know, then there's going to be all sorts of lawsuit problems, as we saw in yesteryear, where Apple throttled their devices for what they claimed was a legitimate hardware device or hardware concern. But nonetheless, it causes problems with legally. So I'm interested to see what happens here uh, and, and feel really bad for the people that are having this happen. I'm curious as to how many people are actually impacted. We get reports on the internet. That's fine. But are we talking about 1% of the user base, 10% of the user base, 25%? There's always going to be weird hardware issues near end of life of devices. This isn't me excusing it. This is more me saying that, hey, this is the kind of thing that happens as hardware, especially the uh, Qualcomm stuff gets old. Because remember, part of what held... Android phones back from getting the same kind of extended software support that Apple devices get is Qualcomm has limited years of driver support for things like the modems and things like that that are put into these phones. So my guess is they're probably right. It's some kind of Qualcomm issue and the story seems to indicate that. And you're probably just kind of SOL at this point in Google. I don't know. I guess it depends on where you bought it from, what kind of concessions you might get in regards to customer support. If you bought it direct from Google, and you're still in the warranty window or just outside of it, you might be able to get some help, but you're probably on your own. I mean, it's it's a Pixel 3. It's almost three years old in the grand scheme of things when it comes to hardware now. Even extended warranties are probably run out because I think you can only slap like a two-year extended warranty on them. Yeah, I thought that though, maybe I'm wrong in this. I thought the 3 though and the 3XL were made by two different companies or was that the 2? That was the two. It was made oh, by LG and it was okay. made by HTC. I think that's what it was. Okay. So this was, yeah, this was when they went right back to, to all LG or whatever. So, okay. That explains why it would be both of them. Interesting. I think though that this is probably one of those things that Google will just not really do anything about it. If enough people complain, they'll probably give them 
if they're cl- close enough to the, when their warranty ended, I don't know, they'll just send them a refurb phone or they'll just give them a credit for a four, uh, Pixel 4 or something. It'll be something that Google will probably try to brush under the rug as they seem it, to do. It is, but th- this is one of those problematic phone stories and we all bite on them from time to time, which is, it sounds real terrible on paper, but we don't actually have numbers. At least the, the headline I'm reading here doesn't have numbers. Maybe if we dug deeper into the places they're, cite- they're citing as sources, we get an idea of the numbers of people that are impacted. And, and that's where it kind of becomes a bit more of a, is it a problem or is it just that you've got a weird piece of hardware? Because there's always going to be lemons when it comes to cars, to techs, things to tech, things like that, that are going to operate outside the norm. And again, this is not me rushing to Google's defense or anything like that. But if it's only a handful of devices or a limited amount of devices, I'm not sure this is something that Google needs to rush to address and be like, here's what we're going to do for you. Should they? Absolutely, because it'd be good customer service. But there's no guarantee they're going to. Now, if this was impacting, say, 25% of the active remaining Pixel 3 devices, you got a bit more of a reason to be like, hey, Google, something's really screwed up here. And I just realized what I said there, and I don't know how I didn't trigger my own assistance. (laughs) Sorry about that, everyone. But it's numbers is what it comes down to. Same thing with the Apple side of things. And this isn't quite the same thing as before the hate mail comes in. Oh, you guys, when the note what was it? The Note 5 watch was going on about phones randomly blowing up and exploding. We're making a big deal of that. Well, there's a difference because when you have a lemon there, it exploded. When you have a lemon here, it bricks. It's not quite the same level of damage to everything around it. Well, you know what they should do, though? They they should just go and give everybody uh, Pixel 6s when they come out who are affected by this. I mean, realistically, if they're going to do it, I'd say Pixel 5As, which have just come out which my wife has one. It's a pretty sweet phone. All right. Well, anyways, we look forward to seeing what happens here in the future when Chris goes and buys a Pixel 3 and then has this happen to him because I think he's going to do the research. I mean, I considered at one point in time when I saw some crazy trade-in deal they're offering for Samsung phones, the Pixel 3 was going for like $400 trade-in. I went to swap. I was like, I could buy one for 99 bucks. That's basically three hundred dollars of trade-in credit if I wanted to get the folding phone, but I don't. I don't need a folding phone. <laughs> I want one, but I don't need one. All right. Well, what do we got next in the news here, Chris Farrell? Let's talk Game Boy. Let's also talk Nintendo Switch. So I don't know if you guys are aware there is an online service for the Nintendo Switch called Nintendo Switch Online. It's twenty bucks a year for one person or thirty-five bucks for a family plan that I think either does four or five people. I can't remember, and I forgot to look it up before the show. I apologize. And if you have Nintendo Switch Online, you get access to a back catalog of games. And right now, there is a boatload of NES and SNES classic games that you can play as part of your subscription directly on the Nintendo Switch. Classic games like Mario, like Zelda, like Donkey Kong, things like that. Those are all there and available for you to play. And Nintendo regularly puts out new games onto the uh, virtual console, for lack of a better term. And they kind of just drop them randomly and get one or two new games that show up at the top of the screen. You go, ooh, I have always wanted to play this game. Well, there are strong rumors coming out now that Nintendo is going to bring Game Boy and Game Boy Color games to the Switch Online library. There's a story over on The Verge that I'll reference here where they say Nintendo may be finally ready to bring its storied handheld gaming library to the Nintendo Switch. Game Boy and Game Boy Color titles will soon join the 100-plus NES and SNES games offered on the Switch Online service. 
Where does this come from? This comes from rumors on the Nate the Hate podcast, later corroborated by Nintendo Life, and then again last week by Eurogamer. So as far as Nintendo rumors go, this is a lot of corroboration, which makes you tend to think this is going to happen because Nintendo rumors are, are tough to get out there and tough to get backed up. But now you've got three different sources saying this is coming. It's exciting, but don't get too excited because we have no idea what titles will be coming to the Switch console. And remember, it's kind of slow going them rolling these out. We're still waiting for things like Earthbound, Chrono Trigger, and Super Mario RPG from the classic SNES line to hit the virtual instances on Nintendo Switch. So no clue when these games will be coming or how many will be coming, but it opens the doors for things like uh, Super Mario Land, Link's Awakening, Link's Awakening DX, things like that that are really classic Game Boy games. And personally, I'm kind of holding out hope that this also includes some Game Boy Advance games, which was the next step past the Game Boy, so that we could get things like Metroid Fusion and Fire Emblem. But they're starting to make this $20 a year service I pay for to cloud backup some of my games because it doesn't cloud back up all of my games. And I've complained about that before, so we don't need to hear that today. A bit more useful. And for 20 bucks, that's pretty cheap in comparison to what equivalent services cost from Sony and Microsoft. And you're getting 100 plus classic Nintendo games and potentially, let's arbitrarily say, another 20 Game Boy games that might be coming soon. 120 games as part of your yearly subscription that you can pick up, play whenever you want, create your own save points anywhere in the game. It's pretty cool. And from an older gamer perspective, I guess we'll call it, I think it's pretty neat that this is a way to get these classic games in the eyes and in the hands of a younger generation of gamers who might have the service and check it out and be like, oh, I really like Zelda Breath of the Wild. Let me play uh, Zelda Link to the Past or something like that. And then they'll get to play some classic games that I grew up with and get the same appreciation for them. So I'm kind of excited to see what they bring. And I guess it's another good reason to keep my Switch Online subscription. Uh, Let's be honest here. Um, If this ends up happening, you are going to just basically buy two Switches so that you can have one dedicated for this purpose and one dedicated for other purposes, aren't you? Steven, there's already two Switches in my house. Oh, well then, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) My wife and I both have a Nintendo Switch, so... To be fair, you don't really have to have different consoles for this. What's really nice about these classic games that are part of the the subscription there is you can create a save point anywhere. So say theoretically you're playing Super Mario Brothers. I, I can't remember the button combination, but you can create your own save point that basically saves that state of the game, close the game out, go play a different game, and you can load it back up and say, hey, bring up my custom save points, even on games that don't have saves. And you can start it up and play from there. And it's also kind of cool because it has a rewind feature too. So if you're playing Mario Brothers and you're stuck on this one level and you don't want to burn all your lives, you can just rewind the game every time you die and keep trying to time that jump just right. It's kind of neat. Do you think that they might have been delayed on this sort of thing because they were so into the Nintendo classics that they thought that maybe there was a better opportunity here to to do that? instead of bringing it to the Switch? I don't know. I think that might have slowed some of the games coming to the Switch Online service, because Star Fox 2 is actually now one of the games that's on the Switch Online service. It used to be only on the SNES Classic. So I would think that would be the case, but we never heard any rumors of a Game Boy or a Game Boy Color Classic. We were hearing lots of rumors about N64 Classic, 
which might be why we have not had them say, hey, we're going to put N64 games on this system. But it might have slowed the inclusion of some games into that service. So I'm kind of sitting on the fence here saying, I don't think it slowed it down much, but it may have slowed down which games came to the service. Well, I just don't get it because this seems like something that would have been really easy for them to do sooner. Oh, I agree. The question is, how are they doing it? And I complained about this in the All Things Good Nerdy show, which is that if you are a Nintendo gamer and you've bought these classic games multiple times, it could be you've bought it on the original system they came out on. Then you bought a Wii and you bought the virtual console instance of Mario Brothers 3. Then the Wii U came out and you went, oh, I want to play Super Mario Brothers 3, but it wasn't available on the virtual console. You then bought it again on the Wii U instance of the virtual console. Mm. And then in theory, had they not put this service out, this game would be in the Switch Online store. And you'd be like, I'm going to buy this game for the third time because Nintendo's strategy for how to sell these games has always been it didn't carry over between generations. By pretty much making this part of their, of their subscription service, they're probably making it a bit easier on themselves and how they're putting these out because they don't have to put them out in the store or anything like that. It's just whenever they're ready, drop them in the app for people to play as they want. And I don't know how complex it is. In an ideal world, it would be as simple as Nintendo's like, hey, we own all these games. We're effectively just publishing a ROM within our app. I don't think it's as simple as them basically just taking a ROM of the original game and dropping it in there. I think they have to do some modification, but I imagine this is slightly easier for them. I mean, in an ideal world, you would just drop any mo- any ROMs you wanted into a Switch and it would work. And Nintendo would operate basically a ROM store on the Nintendo Switch. That would be awesome because the Switch is effectively an Android tablet. And we have seen people load all sorts of emulation software on Nintendo Switches or other Android tablets and been able to play games from PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2 era, SNES, NES, N64, GameCube, things like that, because... It's an Android tablet and there's Android emulators that exist already. And in fact, I think it's Sony that got busted with the Sony. What was it? The PS classic. Was that what they called it or whatever it was that they put out? That was their version of the mini switch, mini uh, SNES or whatnot, that they basically literally just put ROMs on there in an emulator because they found that some of them were the European PAL ROMs and some were the NTSC ROMs when people started digging into the code. So it was literally they just dropped ROMs on that device. That's funny. They. Oh, Sony trying to get in on Nintendo's action there. It was not a great, it was not a great system. The uh, mini PlayStation or the PlayStation Classic or whatever they're calling it. It's that important. I can't remember what the name of it was. <laughs> I like the shot. That was a nice shot there. All right. Yeah, what, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on to the next news point here. Let's talk about Apple watches. I don't know if you know about this, Chris, but Apple decided to get into the smartwatch game. Have you heard about this? I have never heard about Apple smartwatches. This is all news to me. Please educate me immediately, Stephen. I I didn't know this either, but apparently they've done this for a couple of years now. I don't know how it wasn't on my radar. I know. It was somehow completely missed my radar or not on my radar at all. And Apparently, they're actually on the seventh generation coming up of the Apple Watch. Seventh Damn. generation. That's crazy, hey? That is. And it's probably better than all instances of Android Wear watches that we've seen that I have pretty much killed and buried off. 
Hundred uh, percent. But if you didn't know this as well, in 2021 September, there is a bit of a a problem with technology. There's been a shortage of technology because of a few different issues, including a a uh, microchip problem, and of course slowdowns with transportation due to COVID and a whole bunch of variables. Well, we're we're gonna probably see that in the Apple Watch Seven, and in a recent article that came out. Um, there is indication that the upcoming Apple Watch 7 is going to face these challenges as well. There was a power on newsletter where there was uh, Mark German was the name of the person in power on that said that the manufacturing problem that speculated for the Apple Series 7 watch is likely going to lead to them releasing with limited quantities up front. Now, that's not to say for sure. Apple hasn't confirmed that this is coming out, but according to sources, apparently they are leaning towards them continuing to announce the Apple Series 7 watch or the Apple Watch Series 7 alongside the iPhone 13 that will most definitely be announced this year and then just lead to a a shipping delay or a limited amount of shipping right away until they can catch up with this. This is not a new thing that we have seen. Let's look at the Xbox Series X and the PlayStation 5s there. Those all both were released at the beginning of all of these problems, and they were released with limited quantities up front, and they continue to have this problem. So something like the Apple Watch Series 7 I suspect you will probably see a a long tail with that as well, just because the Apple Watch, as you said, Chris, has been really well done. There's a lot of good reason for Apple users to buy the Apple Watch. It's really good at what it does. And so if you're considering that Christmas is not far off, I think this might be a product that is going to be hard to get your hands on up front. And so I wanted to bring it up here. It's all speculation right now. But Apple has, in recent years, really started to take things under their umbrella for manufacturing. We've seen that with both the mobile and the computer sides of their company. They've made a lot of shifts over the last, well, especially the last two years. But leading back to, I think even around four or five years ago, they started to change a bunch of things around with um, the way that some of the technology was being made and where it was being made and, and have a tighter grip on all of this stuff here. And so to see Apple look like they're going to launch a Series 7 watch with a lot of delay as well just goes to show how big this problem in the world is with microchips and and shortages and things like that. Yeah, I mean, chip shortage is a problem for everyone from car makers, because we've talked about on this show, and I think you've all probably seen news articles of people that are, or excuse me, of companies that are getting cars off the manufacturing line and parking them in the parking lot because they don't have the chips they need to put the uh, entertainment head units in there and things like that. So chips are a problem. Apple is not excluded from them. They could get around some of it for some of their hardware because like in, for instance, their new uh, computers and PCs, not PCs, their new Mac computers, they do their own processors and things like that now. But things like this, it's going to be tough. And I think cell phones are going to be tough right now in the short term, too. I think you're going to see limited numbers of what is it, the uh, iPhone 13 that'll be coming in addition to the Pixel 6 and the next generation of Samsung products 
the supply lines are probably being constrained a little bit because it's tough to get chips. And this is just the new norm we're in. But at the same time, we also need to start considering most of these devices we get now have multi-year support. So we may not need it even though we want it. So if you don't necessarily need it, don't stress yourself out by trying to find one of these things. Don't let FOMO rule your, rule your life here. If you have an Apple Watch 5, don't be like, oh my God, I have to have the 7. Your 5 is probably fine until a time when the supply lines aren't as constrained. Yeah, and I'm curious to see if this will affect pricing as well. Uh, Apple, well that'll be the interesting thing, yeah. Yeah, I haven't read any rumors about it, but um, Apple has not been one to be on the downward trend of pricing. So uh, short supply here might, I wonder if it'll lead to more expensive Apple watches as well. Well, the problem is it's going to lead to more scalpers getting these things and having an insane uh, markup on eBay. It's the problem we've had with the consoles this generation too, is that scalpers have tools to allow them to basically gobble these things up as soon as they become available in stores, online stores that is, and then they'll be sitting on 10 Xboxes or 10 Apple watches and they'll go list them on eBay for two times what they're worth. And some people want them enough that they will pay that for it. And I really, really dislike scalpers. All right, I guess I need to get myself an Apple Watch so I can sell it. Uh, (laughs) I see what you did there. Moving on to our next news point here. What's going on with the real Mass Effect? (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about game engines here for a second. So this will get a little fun right now, but there's some rumors going around right now. Is this, by the way, like the choo-choo engine? Is that what this is? Uh, I choo choo choose you, Stephen. Is what it Thank means. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. A little Simpsons callback there for everyone. <laughs> but we are going to be talking about game engines. This is what basically behind the scenes is used to develop and run these games. And we're getting some news about the possible selection of a game engine for Mass Effect Five, which has had a teaser trailer released for it. Uh, Bioware is the company that makes this game. They are owned by Electronic Electronic Arts, excuse me. And EA recently published a listing on its website for a technical director to work on the Mass Effect franchise. This is kind of cool, and a lot of people start digging into it in the hopes they might find out what some of the plans are for Mass Effect. In among all the requirements on there, the listing cites that experience with Unreal Engine 4 and beyond would be seen as an asset for potential candidates. Why is this a big deal? Well, Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 were all developed with the the Unreal Engine which is owned by Epic, which Epic Games, Epic Games Studios, things like that. They have their game store, things like that. With Mass Effect Andromeda, which was, in many people's eyes, a misfire in the Mass Effect series and had some graphical issues, EA said, hey, we're going to use our own Frostbite game engine here to develop this game. And it led to a lot of problems for developers because this is an engine that was designed to support first-person shooters and sports games and things like that. It didn't really work its way over very well to an action RPG and a lot of the things that were required there. So this listing has a lot of fans speculating going, hmm, perhaps they've kind of learned a lesson here that Andromeda didn't work so well trying to save money by using the in-house game engine. We need to go back to licensing the Unreal Engine, which we used to develop the first three games, which they probably had to play around with some as they just re-released Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 as part of the Legendary Edition. And it looks like they're going to be using the Unreal Engine for the fifth entry in the series, which I take as a good sign and a sign that maybe they've realized that, oh, we screwed up originally. This move over to the Frostbite Engine was kind of a bad idea. 
for a consumer perspective, at least. From an in-house perspective, had it worked, it would have saved them a ton of cash. But it didn't. It led to a bunch of developer consternation. And if you go and start reading a bunch of these stories that came out in 2017, about the same time that Mass Effect Andromeda came out, a lot of the stories from behind the scenes was this game engine was a nightmare for us to work with. We were constantly having to develop custom code, custom things to do stuff that was just simple to do and unreal. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we're seeing Bioware pivot back to the Unreal game engine for their RPGs. I'm hopeful and cautiously optimistic that this means Mass Effect 5 won't be terrible. And that's a bit of an over-exaggeration on Mass Effect Drum, but it wasn't terrible. It just wasn't very good at first. There was a lot of polish missing. And the fact that it didn't sell very well and was critically panned meant that all their planned DLC got canceled, which was really annoying for someone who likes story-based single-player RPGs. So cautious optimism. They're going back to the Unreal Engine, and maybe Mass Effect 5 will be better for it. I have to say, I don't follow a lot about which engine is being used or or whatever with, with games, but... So From I, a user perspective, we shouldn't care. It should be invisible to us, and the game just works, to kind of paraphrase Steve Jobs. But the only reason we know as much about it, like I said, is because of all of the interviews and stories after mm. Andromeda came out that the engine that we selected for this was problematic because it was never designed to do a lot of what we made it do. Well, it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, w- when I first long, long time ago heard about games using the Unreal Engine, it reminded me of my my glory gaming days of Unreal tournaments. So do you think we could get a we, we could get like a Mass Effect 5 tournament game well you say that facetiously but mass effect 3 actually had a really fun multiplayer mode in it yes there was a cooperative team-based kind of horde mode similar thing like we have in gears of war so it is possible that multiplayer could go into it because if they put multiplayer in then they can sell loot boxes and we all know how much ea loves to sell loot boxes Well, I am interested to see what happens with this. It'll be good if they realize that there was a big misstep, we'll call it, on their part, and they can learn from their mistakes and move on. That's what's so shocking about this, assuming it happens, is it would mean that Electronic Arts is capable of saying, hey, are bad and course correcting on something versus throwing more money at something that wasn't working. That does that does sound more like EA. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to be negative here. That's just what we've seen in their past stuff before. You know what? This hasn't been working. Double down. That's the EA slogan. <laughs> Throw more cash at it. <laughs> we'll just put more loot boxes in to make up for it. <laughs> All right. Well, I got one more thing I want to throw in here. Something I just read before the show here, which is apparently Amazon's working on a live audio platform for the A-word devices. Yes, apparently they're trying to get in on that clubhouse action because Axios is reporting that Amazon's music division is actually leading this new effort. And apparently the rumors include that they'll be paying podcast networks and musicians and celebrities to use the new platform that they're working on for live conversation shows and events. Of course, to hide in order to drive traffic there. I don't know. If you didn't know about this clubhouse, it was one of the things that really took off where basically you just chat. That's what it is. It's a streaming chat. Clubhouse dead already? 
I, I mean, for didn't some the hype people, it is. Pass? I think it's still going on for some people, but it's caused a whole bunch of spinoffs in any case. And apparently Amazon, as they often do, do want to get in late to the game on this. And apparently they are working on something. Again, this was according to Axios. So I don't know the details on that. But hey, I guess they could pay us to use it. <laughs> I mean... Assuming the terms of service aren't terrible like it was to originally get your podcast added to uh, Amazon's podcast directory. No one said our conversation had to be good, Chris. We could just like, I don't know, record ourselves saying a bunch of things that don't go with each other and just play them back. So so oh, we'll okay. just put it on autopilot. We can just make an AI tool that takes all of our old shows and uses those words to say something else. Or we just play our old shows. I like it. We'll just do that instead. <laughs> it's the Gunna Geek streaming channel. You'll just grab one of whatever shows on tap. Yeah, I don't know how this would work. It's interesting, the idea, though, of baking it into a smart speaker. I think that that is an interesting concept because that would probably be where you'd be a little more likely to just, you know, have a conversation. It is by something so, that's that's nearby. It's interesting from a listener perspective. As someone who produces content, uh, it sounds terrible to me to use an Amazon Voice Services device's microphone to capture yes. voice in a clubhouse-like environment. Because if you go in the A Word app, you can go and replay things mm -hmm. that you've said on there because you can sometimes go back and be like, hey, this is wrong and report it to them. And the microphone or the audio quality is not great and i'm not can, I'm not can a huge I, audio can, snob, can i give a, a call back to js it is poo poo it is poo poo jj abrahams wouldn't like it according <laughs> to js and there's your real callback on that one but these devices aren't designed for this conversational kind of thing like i know we've probably all in a pinch used one of our google devices or amazon devices to make a phone call at least mm -hmm. i know i have but anytime i do that whoever i'm talking to is like you sound like real echoey. You sound like you're really yeah. far away. And it's because no matter how good their beam forming is for their microphones or anything like that, they're not as good of microphones as what a podcaster is paying for to put in front of their face or as simple as what's in your Bluetooth headphones, the microphone that's in that, because proximity is a big deal. No, I agree. And, and I guess that's where I, the distinction would be important because if they are looking to actually use this content in podcasts and things like that. I 100% agree. I think it would be terrible audio and it, it almost unlistenable. But if they're just trying to get big podcasters to use this to leverage them in just like an offline, like off-show sort of capacity, build a community, that's where I think you might see a little bit more of that because Discord has worked for a very long time with the live chats, the live channels for some people. For a lot of people, it has not worked because there's not a lot of people who are willing to just sit down in the ways that they can connect to Discord and have a voice conversation. But I think you might get some people who would use their Amazon devices to have just a drop it, like to drop into a conversation sort of thing. But I don't know. All of these things are probably going to be, oh, you remember when there were all these audio services in 10 years time from now? Probably. You know what they should do? They, they should create this idea where people can, can have like a show together over the internet and then they could put it out and people could listen to it on their own time. A netcast, if you will. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a good idea. 
<laughs> All right. Well, while Chris and I laugh at our own jokes, if you want to be funniest, <laughs> if you want to join us while we're not doing this show, you can come on over to our Discord server. It's gonnageek.com forward slash Discord. We'd love to have you over there. We talk all sorts of techie things when we're not recording this show. There are different channels, including a smart home channel where you heard about my raccoon sooner. As well, there's a space channel where you can hear about all of the crazy space things that are happening. There's a tech channel and there's even a wrestling channel. No, there's no wrestling channel, but hey, come on over and talk wrestling and maybe we'll add one. Chris, is there anything that you would like to plug or promote before we go? Friendly reminder, we do have a lot of content that streams live on the Gunna Geek Network. If you're on Geeks.Live right now, you can scroll down to the bottom of the page and see a calendar of all of our upcoming live events. Please hop on in and enjoy one of the other live shows. And one of those other live shows are All Things Good and Nerdy, where you can see Chris Farrell talk with Anthony and, oh, what was his other name? Um, George. And George Nelson is what it was. George Nelson. Yes, that's right. You can check that out on All Things Good and Nerdy on the Gonna Geek Network. <laughs> so, for episode 390 of the official Gonna Geek show, I'm Steven saying, yep, SP is at a lake. That's where we all should be. His lake, actually. I'm Chris. Goodbye and good night. Also, Suncast. Again, AEW, or as seen on AEW, Suncast. He, he is the famous podcaster now. Bye. Yes. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunnageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunnageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.